0: Father, we believe these words as true history written about in ages past through the law and the prophets proclaiming that this righteous one would come being witnessed by the law and the prophets that he is the true son of God as theologians say, the very hypostatic union of God and man. Truly, O Lord, these things are above us and beyond us and yet, O oh Lord, the Son has explained God through his life on this earth and the words that he spoke. We pray, O oh Lord, for our dear brother Pat, that he would give us the sense, O oh Lord, of this history, how it applies to us. The reality of this history that should penetrate our hearts to a degree that we are changed by. it. Oh o Lord, work with us, O oh Lord. That o Lord Pat's words would be as if it were from God himself as he articulates this truth of history that is O Lord for the world and for us as well to hear the living Word of God that speaks peace to the earth we we say this O Lord, to your holy name and to your to your honor and to your glory amen.
1: Alex's little piggy went wee 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 all the way to the, <laughs> to the, to acute care. What a bummer. What? Oh man. What is that? Oh, is that because this is on as well? Okay. We alright? Why can't every day be like Christmas? Why can't that feeling go on endlessly? For if every day was just like Christmas, what a wonderful world this would be. You may remember that song, right? I was going to sing it for you Elvis style, but I thought better of it. welcome. Well, the title of my sermon that I had to sort of do this morning is, Why Every Day Can't Be Like Christmas? Why Every Day Can't... It'd be like christmas and my text is from Genesis chapter 42 verses 6 through 22 and you'll have to read along because we didn't have enough advance notice couldn't give enough advance notice to put this together up online unless but Genesis chapter 42 verses 6 through 22 Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people, who sold all, to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. While you remain confined, their words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day Joseph said to them, do this. And you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine to your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And this is where we want to focus our attention this morning. Verses 21 and 22. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So you know the setting for this, pretty much. I imagine most of you, the famine that has gone on, the fact that many years ago, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery to an Ishmaelite horde. Um, Joseph now is next to Pharaoh in terms of his position in Egypt, and he's uniquely in a position to be able to provide for, strangely enough, his brothers who sold him into slavery. There's a number of things, both implicit and explicit in the text and I want to look at why these matter this morning we want to see in this text the ruin the lordship the dominion and the power of sin for there's a danger as we think about this story we know at the end that what God did according to Joseph as he said to his brothers you recall what you intended for evil God intended for good There's a certain sense of danger in seeing things turn out good. (laughs) What do I mean by that? You know, Romans tells us, right, that all things work together for good. And we might be quick in some ways to even dismiss some of our sin when we think in terms of that. Some years ago, when I was speaking at uh, Camp Impact, and I had the task of speaking to young people about the process of chemical addiction and dependency and how that happens and how attachment happens and walking through that with them. And at the same time, I thought to myself, here I am telling them all the dangers of this and everything that I had been through, which is quite a bit, and yet here I am standing before them in one piece. You know, they don't know necessarily what permanent damage I might have had from accidents and financial, from, from other things that had to do with my life back then. But I stood before them looking fairly whole. Well, we need to see the need to kill sin and how this fits in again with the fact that you know why every day can't be like Christmas John Owen in his treatise mortification of sin wrote be killing sin or sin will be killing you sin will be killing you and it's obvious in the text if implied if not obvious that the brothers not killing sin was killing them and to see what can be said of you and I. For 15 years, they have been living under sin's dominion, the brothers 10, the ones that went down to Egypt. Joseph was 17 when his brothers threw him in the pit, traded him to the Ishmaelites who were on their way to Egypt, faked his death to Jacob. The envy and the hatred and the malice and the deception and the covetousness that led them to do what they did. In a sense, they erased another human being, or so they thought. And I think that we need to be aware of hatred, envy, covetousness, malice in ourselves as well, for though we may not literally do what they did, it becomes very simple to erase another person in our minds. And how do we know we've done that? When we talk about them in such pejorative ways and derogatory ways that they might as well not exist. They talk about them as if it's something we scraped off the bottom of our foot after walking through the horse pasture. And I know this because I am guilty of it often enough to catch myself. I want to suggest to you that the ten brothers have, ironically, spent the last 15 years in a pit. Much <laughs> like the one they threw their brothers in, one without water. And to consider what life is like for 15 years with that sin still with them. And the effect of that sin still with them. And how that must have affected every other relationship that they had in addition to their relationship with with each other. Romans chapter 8, verse 6, we read, The mind set on the flesh. Romans 8, 6. Excuse me. i explain why it didn't make sense. It was in Corinthians. But to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Well, what is death while living? Right? To set the mind on the flesh is death. Well, what is that while living? I think at the very least, at the very least, it renders us incapable of genuine love. It renders us incapable of genuine love. And I think for the ten brothers, and certainly it can be this way for us, no sense of the wonder of being in covenant relationship to God. So these brothers, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham to whom the promise was given, and them as it's supposed to be passed along to, cannot possibly live with any sense of the wonder of being in covenant relationship to God. Because we are equipped with the capacity at the level of God's cosmic display of Himself for relationship with Him. But there's no way that they would not daily think about what they had done. And to think about the work that goes into living with that, the work that goes into living with the remembrance of that sin and all that they had done and that that they had not dealt with. M. Scott Peck wrote, The heart of sin is rather... The persistent refusal to tolerate a sense of sin. To take responsibility for one's sin. To live with the sorrowful knowledge of it. And to pursue the painful way of repentance. Evil people are simultaneously aware of their evil and desperately trying to resist that awareness. Evil people are simultaneously aware of that evil and desperately trying to resist that <coughs> that awareness. In the movie, The Machinist with Christian Bale. Amazing movie. He lost a hundred pounds for the role. He wasn't paying attention in the movie, the main character in his driving, and he hit and ran somebody over. Killed them. And didn't let anybody know about it. What began to happen was insomnia. Deep anxiety in him. And so, as time goes on he literally loses a hundred pounds he's a mere skeleton of a man one person in the movie said to him if you were any thinner you wouldn't exist he couldn't cope he lost his job he was responsible for injuring another person on the job in the machine shop where he lived his utilities were shut off guilt rendered him a mere skeleton of a person undealt with unrepented guilt guilt Rendered him a mere skeleton of a movie, a person. So it was a a fantastic movie to see that played out in the, in the, in the physicality of the person. And to realize there's a spiritual reality taking place behind that. We cannot live with this sort of thing without risking insanity. How terrible guilt is. And we look at where Joseph's brothers are at in, in chapter 42 verses 1 to 2. If we go back a few when Jacob learned there was no grain for, there was grain for sale in Egypt he said to his sons why do you look at one another he said behold i have heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt go down and buy for us there that we may live and not die now i think so what is their mindset what might be going through their mind just just a few verses from genesis chapter 37 when they heard their father say go down to egypt i would suggest that what's going on here is that uh, the brothers knew at the time that they sold Joseph that he was going to Egypt. There's every reason to find that to be so in the text. Thirty-seven, twenty-five to 28, Then they sat down to eat, uh, and looking up, this is after they had thrown him in a pit, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bringing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it to, down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our, kill our brother and conceal his blood? come. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites. For 20 shekels of silver they took Joseph to Egypt. They knew that Joseph was going to Egypt. And now I'm beginning to wonder what's going on in their mind when their father says to them, Go down to Egypt. The thing that they had been suppressing for so long could not but constantly be there. Coming back. They just looked at each other, the text says. What are you doing just looking at each other? Fifteen years of spiritual famine. Why don't we deal with sin? <laughs> Why don't we deal with sin? We, in 21 and 22, the brother says, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered him, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So there's no way they haven't spoken about this in 15 years. And here it all just comes to a head. We saw the distress of his soul. They saw that. They saw what this sin had done. They saw what they were doing. This wasn't hidden from them. They weren't sinning in ignorance. They saw the distress of his soul. They said, we sinned against the boy. I think that's part of their problem there. I think, I think they were limited in what they saw. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? I don't think they saw it first as sin against God. With whom that they were in covenant. Unlike Joseph. Joseph, you recall, saw sin against uh, what potentially would have been sin against Pharaoh, first as sin against God, if you were to have accepted Potiphar's wife's advances. I think we note here that God's beginning to work in them as well. Dallas Willard wrote, Few today, few today have discovered that they have been disastrously wrong and cannot change or escape the consequences of their wrongness on their own on their own. There was little sense of woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6-5. Yet without this realization of our utter ruin, he continues, and without the genuine revising and redirecting of our lives that this bitter realization naturally gives rise to, no clear path to inner transformation can be found. We will steadfastly remain on the throne of our universe, perhaps trying to use a little God here and there. See? That's, that's in part why every day can't be like Christmas. Christmas, in many ways, is using a little God here and there for the lost and, and sadly so, even perhaps for Christian people at times. Christmas is, in, in a certain sense, uh, using a little bit of God in the wrapping up and putting away of everything with the next day or within the next week. It's not at all unlike people that sort of just go to Christmas services or have a little bit of religion that gives them some sense of assuagement that, in their own understanding of sin that they've done something about their sin. <clears throat> We too easily think, I got this. You know, in some way we allow sin to continue because our universe works better for us with that sin in it. (laughs) Our universe, our universe, we call it. We don't say that, but we do. Every one of us is guilty of trying to be general manager of the universe. Our universe works better for us with that little bit of sin in it. But oh, how much energy goes into resisting the spirit. In the lost, this becomes so much a part of daily life that it actually becomes necessary for them to give applause to others who commit the same sins because the applause drowns out the voice of conscience. Romans 1 says that they applaud those who do the same, right? They know those things are worthy of death, Romans 1 says, but they applaud those that do the same. So you can see sort of the deep, sickened psychology of humans in that... By applauding certain people that do these things, they drown out the conscience a little bit. And God allows that to happen. That's what it says a little little bit prior to that in Romans chapter 1, when God gives them over. Dead people applauding for dead people. Even the Christian has to see this in in, in our own life. The idea of seeing a little sin is no big deal. Galatians 6-7 says... You reap what you sow. If you reap to the to the flesh, you, you, you sow from the flesh. If you reap to the Spirit, you sow to the Spirit. Thinking too little of sin is sowing to the flesh. Thinking too little of it is sowing to the flesh. So we don't look at the cross enough, because the cross is what tells us everything all the time. The cross always tells us everything that we need to know about everything, about ourselves. And you get... Allow your imagination to get to that cross regularly, to see the carnage of the incarnate God that looks so darling in the nativity scenes. And having done that, only having done that can we, are we ready to then kill sin? No more excuses. No more off the hook. No more thinking lightly about it. Piper wrote, John Piper, until you believe that life is war, that the stakes are your soul, you will probably just play at Christianity with no blood earnestness and no vigilance and no passion and no wartime mindset. Soul at stake. For the non-Christian and for some that consider, they call themselves Christian, the very seriousness of sin Romans chapter eight verses thirteen to fourteen, going back across town there a little bit. <clears throat> Romans eight, thirteen to fourteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then in, in actually verses 5 and 6, you just go back a little bit there and you get you get more of this. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Ignoring sin, letting it sort of ride in us, there's a way of 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 letting that happen. It's a way of letting that set. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So we need to set our mind on the Spirit. As Bruce Weir said, amazingly, when the Spirit works in us, our heart, in our hearts to bring us to salvation, His central purpose is to show the beauty and glory of Christ. So to be, to set the mind on the Spirit is to have the mind in a place where we can continue to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. We're working in small groups, those of you that are in small group, a book, that has to do with taking your sort of spiritual temperature, right? Ten, ten ways to sort of see where you're at spiritually. Now, what's the title of the book exactly? Somebody got that on them. Ten questions to diagnose your spiritual health. Ten questions to diagnose your spiritual health. And in chapter seven, which is what our group is on this week, has to do with the spiritual disciplines. It's all about how, what the, what's, what purpose the spiritual disciplines serve in, as Scripture says, perfecting yourselves in holiness, in the fear of God and in holiness. Not that doing those things is itself going to sort of create that holiness, but the effect of those and the goal of those is to have your mind consistently set upon Christ and relating to Him and His people such that holiness just happens in that pursuit, that very necessary, very deliberate approach. But in the meantime, we have the rest of the week going on as well. We have the rest of, of everything else going on. Because we live in this constant tension of, you know, things are great on Sunday. And then on Monday, you know, you're very tempted to maybe be, you know, flipping off someone that's cut in traffic or you've got something else going on at work. And we say, where's the, boy, when I was singing Silent Night, Holy Night, and my soul was rejoicing, and what happened to that? Where'd it go? And it can just again be very much like a, again the the whole irony of Christmas, and why can't every day be like Christmas? Why the day after Christmas often feels you feel a little a little not a letdown, but I don't know about you, but very shortly after Christmas, if not Christ, the day after Christmas itself, you feel a little bit of a something ended. What happened? I mean, I've been on this riding this high of Christmas music for a month and a half, two months, and and, and eating Christmas cookies to nourish my soul and. Doing, doing all this, and where did what happened? Why, why is it all of a sudden gone? Why well, all of a sudden this morning am I driving to my mother's to get her car to her because she had to leave it at our place last night? You know, the morning got thrown into chaos, right? When Alex fell down the stairs, he set in motion a series of events from there, and so I got to get to my mother's in enough time so I can get back. You know, and there's a guy in front of me doing 25 or 30, right? And in my mind, I'm thinking this guy has no idea how obnoxious he is I mean, what did, and I, I was thinking the worst I could possibly think of him and then I thought okay he's going slow what scripture says something about slow what, what, what can I get out of this what tells me about slow in the verse well be, be swift to hear slow to speak slow to wrath and I'm thinking how slow God is to wrath with people he's you know scripture says he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness he's so slow to wrath with us and we are so quick to somehow in our mind wish that that person could just feel the intensity of their ignorance if I could only articulate that to them right now, you know? Um, the horn in my car doesn't work, fortunately. <laughs> I decided not to get that fixed for that reason. It just I just want to neuter some of that expression of self. Why? Why, why, why? Why can't every day be like Sunday? You know, why can't every day be like Christmas? Why can't why can't that feeling just, you know, go on endlessly? And it, and it will. It will, right? The moment of the resurrection, when you literally will feel for the first time I believe we're gonna feel sin leave our body. I just can't even imagine what the we're gonna I think we're gonna literally feel sin leave our body. We'll feel something at the resurrection. Um, or, or or if we're alive at that point when Christ returns, right? because obviously those that that have died before us, they will have not been in a body for a while, so they'll be somewhat acclimated to that. But to not have that resident sort of in our body and ready to be exercised through all of our body parts, what that will be like. But in the meantime, I think that we can be sort of confronting that reality of of the, the threat and the power of sin, the temptation to sin, and the temptation is always going to be stronger the more we give into it, you know, uh, because the more we give into something, the more it just reinforces the whole process. And it's difficult because if you go on resisting sin and then you finally give into it, well, you've built up some resistance along the way, and it's just this awful thing that goes on. So we need to have, as Piper said, a war mindset, and it comes to looking longer at Christ on the cross, through Christ in ministry, through Christ in the church. And, and to see how our own undealt with sin corrupts our view of other people, you know. Years ago, in my uh, in my master's program, I was out in L.A. and the the professor, um, <coughs> uh, the professor Fred, um, took us to the Getty Museum. Okay, um, and the Getty Museum is one of the most famous art museums in the world. And so, me and my roommate. You know, Calvinists can have really great sense of humor, can't we? So um, as you go through the museum, what you do is you stand in front of the art, the beautiful work of art, and you put on these headphones, and you put in the number that's on the art. So say it's exhibit number 23A. So you punch in 23A, and you learn all about the all about the work of art. Well, what we did, were doing was just randomly punching in a number. So we'd stand there before the art piece, and we'd hear about a completely different art piece. You know? And, and, and try to make, you know, see if there's some sense of, you know, oh yeah, you know, yeah, that's neat. Well, that's what we do when we sort of, we sort of have Christ crucified in our mind at times, but we live completely contrary. You know, it's like we're getting a different message. We're not getting the message of the cross. So that, and so that's why we have to have this sort of wartime sort of mindset. Yeah, Christmas is wonderful with the thoughts of, you know, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, but that ain't yet. Peace on earth is not yet i don 't think I need to tell you that we really need to be in this sort of wartime capacity that 's why every day can 't be like Christmas because Christmas, with the exception of Christmas dinner, is a day of peace and 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 quiet and people getting along again, except for the dinner table. So we have to not think on fleshly things. we need to not play with sin we need not to delay sin we need to kill it we have this I have this book uh, or this this training I took at one point uh by this this guy named Tim Larkin. And this guy, Tim Larkin, has this series of things called target focused training. And what he does is he trains people who don't have the the time and everything to become black belts in a particular martial arts, at least be prepared to defend themselves. And in a chapter that he has, he actually had this chapter that was called and this this would also in, in some ways make a good a good uh, sermon titled, the, the chapter of this particular uh, section was, How to Survive the Most Critical Five Seconds of Your Life. And the, that was the subtitle. The title of the chapter was, "Keep uh, Kill It Simple Stupid. Not keep it simple stupid, but kill it simple stupid. How to Survive the Most Critical Five Seconds of Your Life. And he says in there, Now again, this is a physical thing. We want to make a spiritual connection to it. So forget everything you know about how it should go down. Violence is you injuring people. It's throwing yourself at him to break things inside of him. You are the bull in this anatomical china shop, the Enola Gay to his Hiroshima. It's you violating every tenet of polite society and destroying the only thing that any of us really own. And if that violates your personal philosophy, counters your techniques or seems unsporting, then you haven't really listened to a word I've said. Because violence is never about competition. It's not about showing off or practicing your coolest moves. Save that stuff for the arena. We are talking about life or death violence. Your whole focus has to be on survival. And in this case, survival means causing more damage to him than he does to you. It's simpler than you think because it has nothing to do with thinking. Violence is all in the doing. This is a real spiritual equivalent to that. That mindset that this guy goes into training people how to be prepared to defend themselves physically under attack, is the mindset that we need to have when it comes to sin. You can't be thinking about, well, I can just sort of go to church. Or, you know, I went to church. Or I did this, playing. You know, again, to liken it to martial arts, just just practicing some of the moves impressing yourself in front of the mirror or whatever, you're confronted right now with this temptation, with this very profound thing that has the opportunity to push you even deeper into sin than you were before. And so your mindset has to be a mindset of kill. Everyone here knows some of the primary things that tempt them and some of the places that you easily and readily fall. You know what they are. Right? You know what they are. It could be a movie you've seen a number of times and you know there's an inappropriate scene coming up. It's a scene that you know you can't handle. Maybe somebody else can. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't watch a particular movie. There's a scene coming up where you know there might be some nudity. And you, and you know that that's a problem for you, but you watch the scene coming up anyway instead of turning away from it. That is not killing sin. That is giving it an opportunity. Where you know you are weak... And where Scripture will continue to expose you, the Spirit will expose you as weak. You do it. If you if you know an argument is coming on, if you know you can't talk to somebody about a, a political subject, if you can't talk about COVID-19 with somebody without getting lost in uptightness, then for the love of God, don't talk about it. If you see it coming, just get out of the way. you right? Whatever else it might be. Because there's so many opportunities for sin to grab us. We have to, but you won't be ready to do that if you haven't been spending time with Christ in the spiritual disciplines as we were just talking about a moment ago. Reflection on Him, prayer on Him, Bible reading outside of church, prayer outside of church, Talking to people during the week, encouraging somebody, taking the phone call from somebody that you see calling that you might not want to take the phone call from, just, 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 just doing something, right? And to have that war mindset, because that's why every day cannot be like Christmas. Every day can't be like Christmas, because every day isn't Christmas. That's why, ultimately. Christmas happened and between Christmas and the final thing we have a lot going on and uh, before the Lord raises us up in resurrected bodies we have to be prepared and think about the application to how serious we should take sin and how we should go about killing it and we have each other we have the church we have our our as again as our study this week shows us both those things that we do uh, intentionally by ourselves and also with others uh, so if you're in that group I hope you get to chapter 7 and find that. If you're not, you might pick up that book and go to that 7th chapter. It's very good. But think about, at the very least, the things that, that you might use sort of in your own way Christmas to excuse, to just sort of put off and think that everything's okay because, you know, like, like those that might think doing the occasional religious thing is, is if it's not sufficient, you're not equipped to fight, you're dead. You're a very easy target for the tempter. You're a very easy target for the enemy. You're just, we're just weak. We're weak and we're flimsy and we're frail without this. And, and it's not, don't think about it legalistically. I mean, this should be our, this should be our love dance anyway with the Savior to begin with. Men and women, you don't have to worry so much about, you know, uh, the temptations that another man or woman might, present to you outside of marriage, and you're not going to be on the constant vigilance against that just because you're always worried about it. If you're loving your spouse and your spouse is loving you, it's going to be a no-brainer. You know? I think, I think Things should just happen naturally. Increasingly in our lives, holiness is just what happens naturally. You'll be singing Joy to the World in June. Right? That should be our goal. Our goal should be, Singing Christmas hymns in July or something, you know. It should just always be a ready state of mind. So, that's what I want for for me, and that's what I want for you. And I think we want that for one another as well. So let's let's encourage one another in that, and let's pray. Lord, thank you for the I thank you for the day that we just had. We thank you for the reminder that Christmas is, and a reminder of what Christmas is, and also a reminder of what Christmas isn't and to help us to be cautious and aware, not to too easily pick up and pack away and salvage away what spiritual energy we might have just gotten from the previous exercise, but that we need to continually have an ongoing sense all the time. And if you would, continue to enhance uh, through your scriptures, through your spirit, your own flavor and savor, so that we continue to grow And never grow weary of the tasting and the seeing and the savoring of you. So that we're just always ready by virtue of that. We're we're prepared on sort of that field of spiritual battle to help ourselves and others. Would you strengthen us and do that by revealing Jesus to us more and more every day by your spirit. Amen.